the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. Uh, We begin on today's program uh, by tackling uh, COVID-19, in part because uh, there's been... um, a renewed effort by the D.C. press corps to uh, whip people into a frenzy or to keep them whipped into a frenzy, as the case might be. And a good example of this was uh, yesterday on CNN, uh, Trump communications director Tim Murtaugh, uh, for some reason, agreed to appear with Brianna Keeler, one of the fungible CNN anchors, really doesn't matter that much. And um, uh, they got into... uh, an argument about Trump rally attendance at first, because this is so important to CNN. Uh, but then it uh, turned into a discussion about uh, some of Trump's comments at the uh, rally. Uh, one comment in particular about him sort of saying, and just slow down the testing, please, because more testing and you identify more cases, even asymptomatic cases. But since the press doesn't seem to distinguish between asymptomatic cases where someone's health is not in particular jeopardy versus uh, severe cases, say someone in a nursing home, someone older, someone with a comorbidity who needs hospitalization or even more uh, significant treatment. There's there's no distinguishing there. It's just cases are up. Therefore, you know, we still have we have a spike and and uh, reopening was a bad idea. That's essentially the extent of the the, the thinking and the communicating behind it. And this is um, how that exchange went between Murtaugh and Keeler on CNN, starting with the clip of Trump at the rally at Tulsa on Saturday night. Here's the bad part. When you test, when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people. You're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Is that true? He's asked for the testing to be slowed down. No, it's not. And as a matter of fact, the United States leads the world in testing. We've tested as a nation more than 25 million Americans and about a half million. So why million is he saying that then? He's, it was clearly, I, I understand that there's not much of a sense of humor at CNN Center, but the president was joking, trying to illustrate the point that when you do expand testing, you will naturally expand the number of positive cases that you detect. That is the very point he was making. And, and I'm, not, I'm not surprised that you're either unable or unwilling to understand that the president had a tongue-in-cheek remark there, but that's the point he was making. Well, I mean, Tim, 120,000 Americans dead and millions of Americans unemployed. I'll tell I do not think that is funny. Do you think that is funny? He was trying to illustrate the point that when you expand testing in the manner that the he United said it's States a joke. has, in fact, in leading the world, you, of, you can often use uh, ironic humor. Is it to funny, try to Tim? He was is it trying dead to Americans, illustrate- unemployed Americans? Not- is that funny to you? You can ask the, and re-ask the question a hundred different ways. The point that the president and you won't was answer making, it, and there's a reason I, why. I am answering it. You, the president was illustrating the point that American testing has expanded to such lengths 
that we are now detecting more positive cases. It's and uh, so the joke here is Brianna Kaler and the sort of, you know, the moral indignation. I, I wish Murtaugh would have had uh, some additional data at the, the ready, though, on, on this to distinguish between an increase in cases and which was anticipated uh, more interactivity as people engage in more social and economic exchanges that was expected. But there's a difference between uh, positive cases, there's a difference between infections and hospitalizations and deaths. And in point of fact, daily deaths from the disease have fallen dramatically since April. That downward trend continued into June, even taking into account the average lag between lab confirmation and death, which is about two weeks. The loosening of restrictions on movement and economic activity that began at the end of April so far has not led, not led to the surge in COVID-19 deaths that many lockdown supporters predicted, or in Brianna Keeler's case, despite her hand-wringing to the contrary, seemed to have desired. Remarkable. Uh, Jacob Sullivan, Jacob Sullivan memorializing this at Reason.com. The seven-day rolling average of daily deaths, which peaked at 2210 on April 18th, 2210 on April 18th, has fallen to 605 as of June 21st, 73% drop. The downward trend has continued for more than a month since mid-May when the impact of post-lockdown infections should have started to show up in fatality figures. In Texas, for example, the seven-day average fell from 58 on April 30th when the statewide lockdown was lifted to 20 on June 13th before climbing to 30 as of June 21st. This is the same story elsewhere. And um, I mean, there, there, there are others observing the same things. Trevor Bedford is a Harvard-educated cancer researcher who uh, specializes in uh, cancer research, but also other infectious diseases. He had a Twitter thread the other day about this. He uh, talks about the possibility that we'll have a long plateau with respect to the decline in both cases and then ultimately the continued descent of the, the daily death totals. He writes, I found it odd that we talk all the discussion in the second wave when we haven't finished the first one. I would think it quite possible that we're in for a long scenario. We're in for a scenario of a long plateau, I should say. Testing has increased by about twofold in the past seven weeks. Given continually increasing testing along, alongside roughly stable confirmed cases and declining deaths, we expect that the national U.S. Epidemic has been, US epidemic has been getting slowly smaller. That's directionally where this is going, including with the states that have opened up. And yet Brianna Keeler is continuing to propagate this notion that uh, and she said it actually in the exchange. You didn't hear this part, but, you know, Florida is a catastrophe. That's a lie. And uh, it's got to be met straight away by not just Trump's comm director, but by others with the numbers. Oh, by the way, something else to bring up is the impact on children and education. Uh, Richard Vetter writing in Forbes, closing schools was a grievous error. What everyone needs to realize is that for students under 16 years of age, schools should have never been closed. These students should return to their classrooms for summer school right away. Sweden never closed schools for under 16 and public health authorities in neighboring Norway and Denmark now acknowledge that Sweden made the correct decision. Globally, according to the Lancet, the number of COVID-19 deaths prevented by school closings has been vanishingly small. The same can't be said about the closings, educational effects, which have been devastating. And he refers to this report out of the University of Washington Center on reinventing public education, which looked at 477 school districts across the nation 
and found the following. Well, generally, the top line is, what did it find? Widespread neglect of students. Only 27% of districts, surveyed by the University of Washington researchers, required teachers to record whether students participated in remote classes. During the first two weeks of the shutdown, for example, some 15,000 L.A. students failed to show up for classes or do any schoolwork. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that 10 weeks in, the Philadelphia School District registered just 61 percent of students attending school on an average day. The Boston Globe reported only half of the students are logging into online class or submitting assignments online on a typical day. Again, macro, uh, less than 60 percent of school districts do any progress monitoring, according to the report. The rest haven't even set the minimal expectation that teachers review or keep track of the work their students turn in. And the response from the teachers unions? I mean, just remarkable statements. Chicago Teachers Union goon in charge, Jesse Sharkey, saying customary forms of grading are inappropriate in a global health crisis. How can such an uneven playing field produce fairness and justice for minority students? In addition to be to being wildly patronizing and a transparent cover for the desire of uh, the Chicago Teachers Union to uh, protect their members from working for their pay. In addition to all that, I'm sorry, the playing field was even in the Chicago public schools before the pandemic and not educating any student. That's fairness and leveling the playing field. Teachers in L.A. lobbied for no student to receive a failing grade or a worse grade than they had before the shutdowns. The uh, current and past presidents of the District Teachers Association for the Mountain View Los Altos High School District in California wrote assigning letter grades to our students is equal to assessing their access to technology and Wi-Fi, their housing security and ableism. No work, no oversight, no grades. That's your virtual classroom report card. Would uh, Brianna Keeler, noted COVID-19 expert on the CNN news desk, like tackle that study? Would anybody at CNN? Of course not. Because they don't believe in the real world of trade-offs. They get to live in their bubble where they preen and prance around and uh, pretend that they are the guarantors of American lives. They're in the business of saving lives while, uh, you know, the uh, folks that have to operate on this mortal coil are just interested in what, what uh, Trump's reelection or just interested in their filthy financial concerns. This is such a joke. And it better be fought straight away, because if we do get the expected second wave, no matter how innocuous it may be, or even worse, if it's significantly more lethal, which is less likely, but nonetheless possible, guess who's going to be back arguing for the same policies that so many fear-addled politicians were coaxed into adopting in March and April? Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Um, remember last year when uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau got in trouble when pictures surfaced of him wearing blackface, you know, from parties or whatnot? And he had apparently done it multiple times. He went on an apology tour to try to rehabilitate his reputation, including uh, going to grade schools where he spoke with students about what he had done and expressed his contrition 
for what he had done. Give you an example of uh, Justin Trudeau with uh, primary grade children talking about uh, wearing blackface. Why did you paint your face brown? Ooh, um, it was something I shouldn't have done because it hurt people. Um, it's not something that uh, you you should do, uh, and that is something that I learned. I didn't know it back then, but I know it now, and I'm sorry I hurt people. But did you paint your nose and your hands brown? Mm-hmm. And it was the wrong thing to do. And I had a good conversation with my kids around taking responsibility for mistakes and making sure that we're always sticking up for each other and not teasing each other and being respectful towards each other. And I'm uh, sorry that I hurt you as well. I'm sorry that I hurt kids uh, who, uh, you know, get, uh, uh, you know, face teasing and discrimination because, uh, because of the color of their skin. That's just not right uh, in this country or anywhere around the world. We all have to work together to make sure that it doesn't happen. Okay. Yeah, um, that's all well and good for the f grade school drama teacher turned prime minister up north. And the same thing goes with Ralph Northam and whatever he came up with in terms of his characterization of wearing blackface and or a white hood back in the day. Where do the families of McKay James and Amari Jones go for their apology? When uh, do we have politicians in say, Chicago, the mayor, the police chief, address a uh, classroom on the south or west sides of the city and apologize for what the city has become under their watch and continues to be. I'm referring to two of the kids who were murdered over the weekend. A weekend in Chicago has, has made international news, as we discussed yesterday, where 104 people were shot and 14 people were killed including three-year-old McKay Jones, James, excuse me, 13-year-old Amari Jones. Amari was just watching TV in her house. McKay James, the three-year-old, was in a car with his 27-year-old father. Another vehicle pulled up behind them. Someone opened fire. The little boy gets hit in the back and killed. Police say the father was the likely target. Hmm. What about that? What about accountability for allowing neighborhoods to be shooting galleries generation after generation as one party and one mentality rules the day. I mean, I guess it's not just the politicians, but those who elect them that should be going to classrooms and apologizing, too. But you won't get that apology. You get apology when you uh, do something, you know, symbolically ignorant. No apology when you do something substantively ignorant in terms of the policies that you advance that impact real lives and, in point of fact, cost people and kids their lives. This was a, a response from Superintendent David Brown, who's getting a trial by fire coming from Dallas to Chicago. Gangs, guns, and drugs. And uh, not enough time spent in jail for violent felonies. Not enough time spent in jail for violent felonies. Well, that's interesting. It's funny, uh, Superintendent Brown was unwilling to name names here, which is customary in Chicago and in big cities generally where everybody's an innocent bystander. He complained about the monitoring system that uh, it doesn't do We're not doing a very good job monitoring those that are out uh, on monitors. Well, that, that's the Cook County State's attorney's responsibility. And so is prosecuting violent criminals and ensuring they get long sentences. That's the Cook County State's attorney's responsibility. The Cook County State's attorney, as you may remember from Jesse Smollett infamy, 
is Kim Fox, black female Democrat. David Brown is a black male. Lori Lightfoot is a black female. The Cook County Board President, Tony Preckwinkle, is a black female. And the problem in Chicago is white privilege. I mean, if you want to play that game, the problem is we don't have a good monitoring system. Well, who's in charge of it? The problem is we're not getting stiff sentences for convicted, violent offenders. The chief judge in Cook County, Timothy Evans, black male. I mean, uh, you know, who wants to be a cop? I, I, I get it. But the the argument is and all the tears are over things over which those politicians have no control. And yet there is no responsibility that's attached to them or that they apparently feel for the things that are somewhat under their control. Uh, Roland Fryer uh, is a Harvard economics professor writing in The Wall Street Journal about what the data say about police. I led two starkly different lives, writes Professor Fryer, that of a southern black boy who grew up without a mother, knows what it's like to swallow the bitter pill of police brutality and that of an economics nerd who believes in the power of data to inform effective policy. Since uh, the propaganda out there amplified by a ignorant race hustling press corps is that black parents have to have this conversation with their black sons and daughters about not being shot by police, that they have to worry every time they go out that they're going to be shot by police. Roland Fryer's investigation, his study. Uh, from localities in California, Colorado, Florida, Texas, and Washington State, accounts of 1,400 police shootings at civilians between 2000 and 2015. In addition, from Houston in those same years, reports describing situations in which gunfire may have been justified by department guidelines, but the cops didn't shoot. This is a, a key piece of data that popular online databases don't include, what which should. Roland Fryer on the data and his analysis, his team's analysis. No matter how we analyze the data, we found no racial differences in shootings overall, in any city in particular, or in any subset of the data. I have grappled with these results for years as I witnessed videos of unmistakable police brutality against black men. How can the data tell a story so different from what we see with our eyes? Well, of course, he knows the answer to this, and so do you. The situation, the killing of George Floyd, was an anomaly. That is not standard operating procedure. That does not happen very often. Happening once is too often. Right. We all concede that point. But you can't take from that anecdote and extrapolate across 800,000 cops and what they do on a daily basis in a nation of 330 million people. It's ridiculous. So as he writes, Professor Fryer, our analysis tells us what happens on average. And it turns out the plural of anecdote is not data. It isn't average when a police officer casually kneels on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Are there racial differences in the most extreme forms of police violence? The Southern boy in me says yes. The economist says we don't know. It's fair. That's fair. What isn't fair is the cartoonish caricature that directs people to focus on irrational fears rather than focusing on very rational fears and very real problems that are illustrated anecdotally, the three-year-old and the 13-year-old, 14-year-old I just mentioned, murdered in Chicago over this weekend, anecdotally as well as by the data. Rank order priority if you're in the interest, if your interest is in preserving life. Rank order priority. The southern boy who grew up to be a Harvard economist, as he describes himself, the economist nerd Roland Fryer, tells you 
what the priority should be. This is Dan Proctor. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, on the Senate floor yesterday talking about uh, the uh, Clockwork Orange crews roaming the countryside, tearing down statues, the mob, and um, whether or not uh, you, ordinary American citizen, are free from its clutches. Lincoln also warned that the lawless in spirit will become lawless in practice because of mob violence, seeing no consequences for crimes. The mob doesn't stop at statues. Rioters have already torched police precincts and low-income housing in Minneapolis. Churches and synagogues have been vandalized. Next, perhaps the mob will target the homes of police officers. And soon enough, the mob may come for you and your home and your family. As the mob expands its power, Lincoln cautioned that good citizens, seeing their property destroyed, their families insulted, their lives endangered, their persons injured, and seeing nothing in prospect that forebodes a change for the better, become tired of and disgusted with a government that offers them no protection. Mob rule can only serve to demoralize our people and shake their faith in our government and our way of life. As the mob rises, civilization recedes. As the mob rises, civilization recedes. Do you feel it receding? Well, then you're feeling it correctly. And uh, an important point he made, you know, the mob coming for you, the ordinary citizen, one without profile, one without political power, status in society. You think you're insulated. Some do. Uh, Is he being hyperbolic just to whip up fear? No, I don't think so. Uh, Carol Markowitz writing in the New York Post about the same topic Uh, it's particularly the citizen that doesn't have power, doesn't have status, doesn't have profile. That's perhaps the most vulnerable couple of examples, even when you do, actually. Uh, She reminds us the stepmother of one of the cops involved in the shooting of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, the stepmother of one of the cops, was fired from her HR job simply because of her family linked to the officer. Markowitz uh, notes that communist regimes the world over similarly punish guilt by family association. Uh, L.A. Galaxy midfielder Alexander Katai was released from his contract over his wife's social media posts. Markowitz comments somehow in America in 2020, if the actions of one spouse reflect poorly on the other, he can lose his job. She also reminds us of the uh, unknown private citizen who was outed by The Washington Post a left-leaning woman who put on blackface uh, to attend a Hollywood party two years ago, making fun of Megyn Kelly, who had been accused of making light of such uh, actions. Uh, She was fired by her employer for parroting Megyn Kelly, parroting those who would make a a blackface a big deal. Um, Do you like those trend lines? Uh, you shouldn't if you want to live in a free society. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by 
Theodore Dalrymple, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor to City Journal, and a retired physician who uh, practiced in a British inner city hospital and prison. Theodore Dalrymple, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you for asking me. Uh, you're seeing uh, similar activities uh, in your uh, homeland of Britain as well as describing here, tearing down statues indiscriminately. Winston Churchill is apparently now the, the one of the bete noirs of the mob. Um, uh, what, what about that mentality, the mob mentality of trying to uh, eliminate history that you've decided uh, should be eliminated that uh, runs afoul of your values? Well, I, I mean, these people are, uh, the, the, the mob are, believe themselves to be uh, acting virtuously uh, when in fact they are, they are just a mob and they're not being courageous at all. Uh, they're destructive. Uh, and um, they have nothing to replace it with. They are purely destructive. This is pure destructiveness. And um, uh, it's not that we've never seen anything like this before. I was actually looking at uh, what happened in 1968 in Paris, and uh, in in the uh, National Assembly in uh, Paris, the uh, Prime Minister, who will soon be the President, Georges Pompidou, said, it is no longer a question of the survival of the government. It is no longer a question of our institutions. It is no longer even a question of France. It is a question of our civilization itself. And uh, we seem to be in the same position now. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to just uh, delve into this moral panic that uh, seems to have gripped the West a, a little bit more and get your uh, professional opinion as a psychiatrist. More with Theodore Dalrymple, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor to City Journal right after this. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Theodore Dalrymple, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal, retired physician who uh, most recently practiced in a British inner city hospital in prison. And we were talking before the break about uh, the threat that the mob poses to civilization and, and, and just this this uh, swing from one moral panic to the other that we seem to uh, have allowed to envelop culture in the West. H- how do you explain this? Is it is it a recognition by some that they can lay claim to power through identity? And so they're just trying to scale up or is there something uh, more complicated going on? Well, I think that's part of it. But underlying it all, I think, is the lack of any transcendent belief of uh, increasingly large numbers of people in our society, uh, especially actually amongst the educated, so that uh, the people pulling down the statues would on probably on average be more highly educated than those who refrain from doing so. And what they're in search of is a kind of transcendent purpose in life, which religion no longer provides them. There isn't really any uh, cultural belief. We've destroyed a lot of... uh, We don't teach our children our culture from the past. And so that they don't have any sense of transcendence. 
They don't believe really in any constructive political project. In France, uh, for example, the Communist Party used to have that uh, religious fervor about it, which was a very bad thing, but nevertheless it did provide people with a sense of something larger than themselves. And I think these people are trying to recapture that that sense of having a, a higher purpose of, than merely themselves. But of course it's a completely bogus one. Uh, you write a, about... Um... Uh, an incident you read about in the New York Times, uh, you write about this at City Journal, call it abuse, and you talk about uh, this uh, father, as reported by the New York Times, who took his five-year-old child to a political demonstration uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and one that was fraught with potential danger, and that's not a smart thing to do as a parent of a five-year-old. But in addition to that, you, you talk about the resentment, the resentment that uh, comes across the father, it comes across in the reporting that the father clearly had, and was trying to pass down to his child by participating in this in this protest. And I I wonder if you could develop a resentment as a as a as a human emotion and how powerful and dangerous that is. Well, resentment is one of the very few uh, human emotions that can last a lifetime, and it has certain sour satisfactions. So that if you resent, you can blame someone else for your own dissatisfactions, your failures, and it keeps you stewing it in it. It's a kind of slow method of cooking your brain, uh, and it goes on and on, And but it's never constructive. So even where it is justified, and of course sometimes resentment is justified, it's a useless emotion, but it has this, as I said, it has this kind of sour satisfaction you think that you're superior to everything that has happened to you, morally superior to everything that has happened to you, and you use what has happened to you, even if it's only theoretical, to explain all in your life that hasn't gone as you would wish. Um, and as I said, it can, can last a lifetime. And, 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 and clear also that people are in, in, inducing this attitude in their children. Not well, just this one case. Yeah, right. I mean, it's the whole, you know, Western education is uh, centered at least partly around this idea of an oppressive culture and, and oppressive people, white people and uh, victims, oppressor and oppressed. And so you inculcate this sort of resentment in generation after generation. And h- how do you deprogram what you've programmed or can you? Well, I think it's very difficult But what I saw, and I believe it was very widely seen, I think it was a seven-year-old little girl, a pretty little girl, at a a demonstration making horrible um, gestures of hatred and resentment, which were obviously not natural to her. And what I found most, and it was on the Internet, I forget where exactly in America mm-hmm. it, was. it was. It was absolutely horrible. And uh, what really alarmed me was the uh, was the reaction to this because so many people thought it was a wonderful thing that this seven-year-old girl should be punching the air and mouthing um, no, uh, no justice, no peace. Um, and they couldn't see uh, what, was, what was wrong with this. It would be wrong whatever whatever cause she was demonstrating in favor of. It's not that I would want her to be uh, opposing the, the, these ideas either with the same gestures. 
It's appalling. But people have lost the understanding that uh, children are not to be used in this way. Uh, they've also um, lost the ability to not behave like children, it seems. Um, you, you even have to agree with people in the right way. Uh, I, I bring to you this uh, case out of uh, MIT, you know, one of the preeminent uh, institutions of higher education, allegedly in America. The uh, Archdiocese of Boston forcing out uh, a Catholic priest named Daniel Maloney from his role as chaplain at MIT for Catholic students at MIT because um, he made an argument that George Floyd was a fallen individual who did not deserve to be killed. He had not lived a virtuous life. He was convicted of several crimes, including armed robbery, which he seemed to have committed to feed his drug habit. And he was high on drugs at the time of his arrest. But we do not kill such people. He committed sins, but we root for sinners to change their lives and convert to the gospel, wrote uh, Father Maloney in an email. And for bringing up George Floyd's arrest record, he was dismissed as chaplain for Catholic students at MIT. Yes, well, that is the kind of thing one would expect in a totalitarian society, as is the slogan, silence is violence. You're not even allowed to remain silent anymore. You have to celebrate and you have to celebrate the right way with the right words. Yes. I mean, under authoritarian governments, there are things you can't say. You're not supposed to say, well, if you do say them, you get into trouble. But this is worse than that. This is saying there are things you must say. That seems to me, uh, well, it's appalling because it means that a lot of people uh, voluntarily want to live in a totalitarian society. He is Theodore Dalrupple, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal and a retired physician most recently who practiced in a British inner city hospital and prison. Theodore Dalrupple, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thank you very much. Take care. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. So a uh, video interview from 2015 of when Patrice Cullors has been identified. Ms. Cullors is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter organization. And uh, in her own words, what her, her perspective is, along with that of her co-founder, Alicia Garza. We actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. Right. So this is about Marxism, not about police brutality, not about uh, economic opportunity, not about educational opportunity, not about being part of the ownership society, not about integration. This is just using race as one means to advance cultural Marxism. Remember, it's not presented as that, although to some extent it is because they're very transparent. Again, I've repeated this any number of times. What we believe, a Black Lives Matter website, it's uh, much more about Marxism than it is about uh, racial politics. It's just racial politics as one method to advance Marxism. It's very much what you see in the Democrat Socialist Party in this country. When it was the left that tubed the Bernie Sanders presidential bid when it was ascendant, when it looked like he was tracking to be the nominee and Joe Biden couldn't do anything right before South Carolina 
it was the left that moved in Moss to stop Bernie Sanders because they knew they couldn't sell it that transparently. They couldn't sell it in its naked form. And I'm sorry to use naked and Bernie Sanders in the same sentence, but you understand what I'm saying. And so that's the same thing that you see uh, with the aid of the D.C. press corps, the Black Lives Matter and the race hustlers doing using race as a cover to move a more comprehensive Marxist agenda. I'll tell you, um, you want to get uh, perspective on this and make sure that you, you have an understanding that there are people who get this hustle that's going on. Larry Elder, colleague uh, at Salem, friend, but he's got a new movie out. It's called Uncle Tom. You can go to UncleTom.com to uh, watch it pay-per-view on streaming. I've watched it. It's really good. It profiles, including Larry, another two dozen other black conservatives across different age demographics, different professional callings, all with their perspective on what it's like to be a black conservative or to be a black Trump supporter, how they're received and the names, a la Uncle Tom, that they are called for daring to disagree with the established orthodoxy. I think you're going to need leadership from black conservatives. So whether it's elder statesmen like Bob Woodson and Larry Elder and Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell, all of whom are profiled, it's really important to hear from those individuals. So understand who Black Lives Matter is. You just got the 30-second summary from Patrice Cullors. You should believe her because she's serious. And also understand that there is hope on the horizon, not just with the elder statesmen, that you know, but with their influence on some of the younger black Americans, black conservative Americans, black Republicans who are willing to suffer the slings and arrows to advance what they believe to be true. UncleTom.com is the Elder movie and look forward to uh, a discussion of it with Larry Elder in an upcoming show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Federal Reserve Bank of Boston President. Eric Rosengren said uh, yesterday, we'll be in a situation where the economy is growing more slowly than we might have hoped a few months ago, talking about the second half of 2020, saying it's going to be uh, more difficult than anticipated. Imagine the uh, government commissars underestimating the difficulty of the situation that they have created. Some of the better economic data we've been getting has reflected the fact that uh, those places are opening up, but they may not be opening up as safely as they need to be. So then you have the business community spreading this uh, COVID-19 hysteria again, doing the bidding of the uh, hysterical media and the politicians who prattle on about their commitment to data and science while ignoring the data and science and the unemployment numbers that they've generated. I, again, the 10 states that have more than 15 percent unemployment, nine lorded over by Democrat governors, including Illinois. And it just continues in spite of the fact that the 
daily death count on COVID-19 has been dropping precipitously since April. And again, in terms of moving the goalposts, it was never about you're not going to get sick. It was do we have the capacity to treat the severe cases and do we understand what the case fatality rate is across the various demographics, various patient profiles, so we have an understanding of you know, just what the exposure in terms of loss of life is. Well, here we are. And this is just at the tail end, perhaps, of the first wave. Larry Kudlow had this to say about uh, the tail end of the first wave and what we're looking ahead to. I think the uh, PPP program, the payroll protection program, probably saved as much as 55 million jobs. I think you saw it in the May numbers, uh, temporary layoffs and furloughs going back to work by 3 million. I think a lot more of that's coming. I think in general, the rescue package was extraordinary. Uh, led by the president, tremendous bipartisan votes in both the House and the Senate. I think, by and large, it worked. Uh, I saw a piece uh, in the New York Times this morning that suggested the uh, government support programs actually held down the poverty rate. I think that's remarkable. And I know the income increased a lot uh, in uh, April and probably will continue in May and June. So I, I think that package worked. Uh, we're proud of it. I think now I'd love to see us move. This is just me talking uh, from the rescue mission, you know, through the transition of the reopening into medium and long term economic growth incentives. So we can really have not only a great rebound in the second half, but 2021 could be a big bang year. And so could 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, we did it once. We had it going great guns. It's a fundamentally sound economy as the emergency passes mm -hmm. and the opening occurs. So uh, that's my view. I'd like to slant it towards economic mm -hmm. growth incentives as much as possible. Kudlow uh, in a difficult position, particularly against the backdrop of President Trump announcing and signing an order yesterday, barring new immigrants, uh, H-1B visas for high-skilled workers, as well as H-2 H-2B visas for seasonal workers through year's end preventing hundreds of thousands of new immigrants who are expected to rely on visas to work in industries ranging from tech and consulting to landscaping and seasonal jobs at, resor at resorts. Lindsey Graham said that will have a chilling effect on the recovery. I agree with him. Let's find out what John Tammany thinks. He's the editor of RealClearMarkets.com. He's the director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and the author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Um, so uh, first, uh, Kudlow's, uh, you know, general uh, uh, happy warrior disposition about uh, where things are at, uh, surviving. Now let's get to recovery with growth incentives. The only problem, of course, is you're not going to be able to any, get any of those growth incentives through the House. Yeah, I, I'm, I, you know, p people in politics have to play politics, but I'm forever uh, troubled by this notion that we always need policy, that we need Washington to create policy so that we can grow 
Um, the last I remember in February of 2020, the economy seemed to be growing just fine. And, and so to me, all policy is a non sequitur. Uh, you want to get things moving again, just take the government's proverbial boot off of the neck of, of, of the U.S. economy. And what never made sense, it, it, it didn't make sense if, if the projected deaths were 10,000 or 10 million and the lockdowns and, and things will slowly get back to normal. Governments, of course, as is their want, create enormous economic dislocation that they're just prone to mistakes because they like to centralize decision making away from the markets. But we will rebound from this like we do from myriad government errors ever since the U.S. began and realistically since politics began. And what do you think of uh, Trump's uh, order on uh, H-1B and 2B visas? You know, my response is he can't have it both ways. If this is going to be the most amazing economy ever, you will have immigrants. The question is, do you want them to be, quote, illegal or legal? Uh, countries that grow are a magnet for the world's strivers. I, it's the, a huge source of pride to me that people around the world risk their lives to get to this amazing nation. And so to pretend that you can, you can shut out reality just by saying, okay, we're going to stop allowing workers in – um, it, it's, 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 it's unrealistic, and it just means we're going to create illegal workers where otherwise they'd be legal to be here, adding to the economy. The, jobs aren't finite. Jobs are a function of investment, and so countries that attract talented, that attract the strivers, are naturally magnets for investment on the way to exponentially greater job creation. So it, it, it's you know it's Trump stepping on the foot of growth. Um, to be clear, he doesn't. He's he's not great in all ways on the economy. Yeah, and, and there's also something too. I know, I know globalist and globalism is um, a four-letter word these days, but there does need to be a recognition that some of uh, our nation's largest employers, most profitable companies, rely on their foreign footprints to make their businesses go, uh, and you know they're they're mutually beneficial, the domestic production. And, and look, I'm all for having as much domestic production, creating as many jobs in America as possible. I, I believe that. But I don't believe that government commissars know better than, say, the uh, executives at uh, Apple or Johnson & Johnson or Microsoft or ExxonMobil or Walmart or Ford or so forth. Mark Perry uh, put together a good chart on this over at the American Enterprise Institute I mean, you know, the, the the foreign assets of some of our biggest companies are in the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars. The foreign employment of some of our biggest companies are in the tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And you, you can't just wish that away, nor would you want to. There's no way you'd want to. I mean, I'm forever amazed by all the all the paranoia about China. Does anyone realize that Apple sells one fifth of its iPhones in China? It's most one of the most valuable companies in the world. Boeing sells a quarter of its planes there. GM sells more cars in China than it does in North America. It's the second largest market for McDonald's, second largest market for, for Nike. It's the second largest box office for uh, entertainment companies. The idea that you want to shut off this other part of the world is just is, is mind-boggling. It's, it's the source of, of, of a great amount of progress. And, and, and you know, I would just say look at the cities in the U.S. that are manufacturing cities. They're the dying ones, and why are they? Because talented people don't want those kinds of jobs. If manufacturing was what drove an economy, 
And if, if the closing of plants were what killed an economy, then New York and Los Angeles would be the two most devastated cities in all of the U.S. Because 100 years ago, they were the top manufacturing cities. Uh, what were they the top manufacturing cities with? Flint and Detroit. Okay, so Flint and Detroit clung to these jobs of the past that politicians romanticized because they've never been in a factory on their own other than, 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 than to try to secure votes and, and photo ops. They've never worked in one. Uh, but the reality is those jobs repel people. We are a rich country precisely because the work of today will in no way reflect the work of tomorrow. Com countries where jobs are the same are the poorest countries. The, those are the ones that immigrants keep trying to leave because work is quite literally generational. Thank goodness it's not that way here. We, thanks to technology, constantly destroy the work of the past on the way to better. Yet politicians keep stepping on this beautiful point of progress and make it about keeping out people who want to improve their lives. It's just it's so economically bankrupt in, in, in every way you look at it. When we come back with RealClearMarkets.com's John Tamney, I want to uh, address uh, onshoring manufacturing and uh, also get uh, your reaction to a piece by a fellow free marketeer in the Wall Street Journal arguing that uh, some government direction would uh, aid in the recovery. More with John Tamney coming up here. Profshow.com. We're back with RealClearMarkets.com's John Tammany, and uh, let's talk a little bit of manufacturing. Uh, you know what it is in 2020 versus what it used to be. I mean, I would argue we should be rethinking. Uh, our perspective on education with respect to vocational and 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 the two thirds of kids that aren't going to college but can get high paying jobs operating digital lathes and other uh, complicated equipment on a manufacturing floor. And I know you're not doing this, but this is not to be dismissive of American manufacturing. It's just to recognize that 2020 America is not 1950 or 1970 America, and uh, there are ways to accentuate all of these positives that have nothing to do with industrial policy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not that, it, that manufacturing is going to seize in the U.S. or anywhere, but as, as you make the point, it's, it's going to be different. I just don't want to have policies about it. You certainly can't plan it. And so when we pretend to plan it, and, and that's where I would quibble you with you a little bit on education. What could teachers possibly teach? Almost by definition, they're teaching yesterday's news. And that's not me saying I'm against college, I'm against education. I think it serves a purpose, but this idea that it can prepare us for the future is laughable. Let's look at two of the most economically advanced countries in the world right now. South Korea and China were largely illiterate countries as recently as the 1980s. The generations that built those countries weren't terribly educated. That also describes the United States. The people who built this country didn't go generally to the Harvards and Princetons and Yales, but the great fortunes they built uh, made those schools and, and their grandiosity possible. And so I just I think this focus on education is, yeah, it's, it's good for rhetoric and everything. But again, anything teachers or schools can teach will almost by definition be yesterday's news. Mm, uh, interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal by um, Thomas Dusterberg, who's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, which is, you know, free market oriented. 
but he uh, suggests that uh, uh, the recovery would benefit from some government-led efforts, including to identify industries vital to national security products, essential and national health emergencies, uh, on health care, national commission to review the reliability of supply chains, determine which products are vital to meeting the next crisis, and and so forth. Do you see a role for government in, in those directions against uh, some of the government-directed policies uh, and, and support that in, in places like China? No, no, I don't see it at all. It, it forever saddens me that conservatives have become so focused on national security stuff for products and services. Let's never forget that the, the story about the 1973 Arab oil embargoes is a complete myth. And here's why. Did the Arab members of OPEC shut off sales to the U.S. of the oil they produced? Yes, they did. But, of course, that didn't include Iran because it's not an Arab country. But the point is it's not as though the U.S. buyers stopped buying, quote, Arab oil. They just bought it from those they sold to. If you go back to World War One, suddenly the U.S. placed an embargo on trade with Germany. Okay, guess what? Suddenly trade between the U.S. and Scandinavian countries surged. Oh, really? Why? Well, because the U.S. was still trading with Germany, but through Scandinavian countries. If you go to Iran or North Korea today, there are iPhones everywhere. The dollar is the principal currency of those countries. So is it the principal currency of Venezuela. People want to use a currency that they can trust. So this this idea that we need to have specific manufacturing here because without it, those goods won't reach the United States defies common sense. So long as we're producing, we will be enjoying the world's plenty as though it was – and our efforts, markets are open as though it was produced right here. Just the same, we can say forever, oh, we're not going to trade with Iran. We're going to put an embargo on Venezuela. It will be utterly meaningless. If the Venezuelans are producing, which they're not very much right now, if the Iranians are producing, there will be American goods there. And but, so this, I, you know, it just it, it defies basic economics. But, but don't you have some concerns about national security interests with, for example, 5G and the idea that we would put uh, American manufacturing or American manufacturing would put itself on, on a 5G network that was built by Huawei? And that has backdoors for the Chicoms and uh, and and their continued industrial espionage. Don't don't you see that as maybe we should uh, be advancing the interest? And it could be through private financing, but advancing the interests of Nokia or Ericsson for a 5G network that American companies uh, could use, as opposed to the Huawei option. No, why would I care? Because, see, if, if, if the Chinese government had a clue about the future of industry, if those players in the government did, they wouldn't be working in government. And if Huawei is truly a creation of the state, then we don't need to worry about it innovating on 5G. It, it, I think we all remember on this show the 20th century. State-directed industries fail and fail repeatedly, and the reason they do is because they don't have to own up to their mistakes. They can keep doing the wrong thing because they've got endless flows of money. Huawei is a great company precisely because it's not nearly as close to the Chinese state as people presume. But let's say let's say it was. Okay, I mean, it's got a well, hundred billion dollar backing for its five uh, G. That's pretty close. Oh, really? And and so show me all the great U.S. companies that that are great because they're they're constantly subsidized by government. See, isn't it interesting how we constantly knock U.S. companies for taking government money? It routinely weakens them. But are, what are the Chinese? Is there something different in their blood or the water there that they can they can do great when government controls what they do? 
we we laugh at government controlled companies here, but somehow the Chinese are unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I'll just tell you if you can tell me which companies to mimic and spy on in the United States. If you can tell me which companies to spy on in China in terms of future, let's go to New York today. We'll raise billions of dollars, and in about a year, we'll be billionaires. It's hard to predict the future. But let's go back to 2007. The iPhone was laughed at. Remember how Steve Ballmer said that, uh, oh, it's going to be a niche product at best. Uh, BlackBerry said that we're going to destroy these guys. And so you want to bet that probably the Chinese were trying to copy the BlackBerry back in 2007. How'd that work out? The idea that the future, if, if you can tell me which technology to steal, Oh my gosh, we could get so rich so quickly. The problem is it's very hard to predict the future. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, but I mean, the, you know, Chinese industrial espionage, intellectual property theft is is a real thing, and it's a real problem, and it needs to be addressed in some substantial way. I mean, uh, that, okay, that, well, that, so that, that that is an anti free market practice, right? I mean, that, that, and there's no court of law that can enforce uh, well, sanction we, against fraud or theft, so we've got a problem. Well, I mean, let's rip uh, Thomas Edison out of his grave. Let's rip Henry Ford out of his grave. Certainly Steve Jobs, they all fully acknowledge that they were mimicking and stealing ideas all the time. If you watch the NFL, the NFL is a monument to mimicry and the stealing of ideas. Uh, look at how are Bill Belichick's former assistants doing. Uh, they watched him for years and years. Talk yeah. about espionage. What's, what's the record? It's very hard to reproduce genius. Yeah. And so to pretend, yeah. to pretend that it's simple. I think so thoroughly insults American industry to say that, oh, what Steve Jobs created is just easily, re- easily redone in China. Oh, please. Why do we consistently insult our industry like that by saying that anyone can just steal it and reproduce it, A, but also somehow have the knowledge to reproduce it as though the future of markets are so easy to predict? I, I just – I reject that notion outright. I, I think this – this trend among conservatives to pretend that the Chinese, a country full of people who absolutely worship everything that's created here, the big, it's a massive market for American pr- product precisely because the Chinese have such a love affair going on with, with American uh, production. John, we're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there, but I, I do appreciate it. Always, uh, always thought provoking. John Tammany, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. Thanks again, John. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, Wall Street Journal writing about America's Jacobin moment. Uh, of course, hearkening back to the French Revolution, the Twitter Robespierre's and whatnot. Uh, editorial board of the journal writes, this coercive cultural turn threatens to devour what remains of America's civic comedy and push durable social progress and race out of reach. Uh, he writes of or they write, I should say, the editorial board of the Jacobins. They won't stop by themselves because their campaign is essentially about power and control and they need new villains. But as they march through liberal institutions, they're also laying waste to liberal values of free speech, democratic debate and cultural tolerance. Someone has to stop this. And first and foremost, that means the liberal establishment. 
social comedy in a polarized society will not be achieved through coercion and struggle sessions. If liberals won't stop the Jacobin left, expect a political backlash and social fracture that will make Donald Trump's presidency look like a tea party, look like a tea party, not the tea party. Uh, And I was thinking about this and um, this has been bubbling for 50 years. But was there an inflection point five years ago on the campus of Yale, ironically, which is now one of those institutions whose name namesake is under assault? Should Yale be Yale be renamed because Elahu Yale was a slave owner? And uh, the incident five years ago, you may recall, was uh, students excoriating the husband and wife heads of the residential college, Silliman College on campus. Nicholas and Erica Christakis over a email about Halloween costumes and Erica Christakis, the associate head of the Silliman Residential College, suggesting that uh, there didn't need to be a lot of detail that prescribed Halloween costumes. Students at Yale should be able to work out what's offensive or not amongst themselves. If something is offensive to you, then work it out with the offender was her uh, admonition and advice, and that drew the mob. You have not done that. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I stop. don't agree with that. Then, then why the f*** did you accept the position? Because what I have the f*** hired you? I have a different vision. You should step down. If that is what you think about being a master, you should step down. It is not about creating an intellectual space. It is not. Do you understand that? It's about creating a home here. You are not doing that. You're supposed You're to be our advocate. That. You should be at the event last night when you hear a Franco say that she didn't know how to create a safe space for her freshman in Silliman. How do you explain that? These freshmen probably have they think this is what Yale is? Do you hear that? They're going to leave. They're going to transfer because you are a poor steward of the community. The result of that exchange was that uh, the Christakises, the husband and wife uh, heads of that residential college, stepped down from their administrative positions at the residential college. And two of those students shrieking at the Christakis's were awarded prizes for, quote, enhancing race and or ethnic relations on campus. I I just recall this as an inflection point and uh, think of the rapidity with which we've descended over the last five years. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kat Rosenfeld, Rosenfield, excuse me, freelance pop culture and political writer, former reporter for MTV News, and Edgar-nominated author of Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone and Inland. Kat, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Do you recall that uh, Yale incident and, and, and recall it uh, or, or think about it maybe as an inflection point the way I do? Oh, gosh, what a blast from the past that, uh, that recording was. Instant um, classic, and- yeah. <laughs> I haven't I haven't listened to it. I don't think I actually listened to it in full at the time. So that was that was a first for me. Um yeah, you know, it's it's funny to listen to it now because at the time it wasn't necessarily clear that what we were seeing was going to ever really sort of bleed away from 
um, the, the sort of insular uh, petri dish of college campuses to become something that we were dealing with, you know, in the wider world. And I think that now, you know, a few years later, it's clear that it has kind of seeped out. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, let's hold it there. And when we come back, I, I, I want to um, get your handle on what you think big tech, the big social media platforms, because you write about online bullying, their role in all of this and potentially their role in um, addressing some of the uh, more uh, deleterious examples of uh, interpersonal communication these days. More with Kat Rosenfeld, uh, Rosenfield, I keep doing that, sorry about that, reporter for, former reporter for MTV News, and Edgar-nominated author of Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone and Inland. More with Kat right after. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Kat Rosenfield, freelance pop culture and political writer, former reporter for MTV News and Edgar nominated author of Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone and Inland. And Kat, before the break, we're talking about that sort of seminal incident at Yale over Halloween costumes and how much that has now bled into the larger culture, particularly against the backdrop of the uh, civil unrest that is ongoing as we speak in some form or fashion, whether it's monuments being taken down or people being canceled for not agreeing in the right way, much less disagreeing. And I wonder how much you think Twitter and Google and Facebook and the big tech companies, the role that they've played in the cultural deterioration in the ability to have a conversation and civilly disagree with one another. Well, I mean, I think social media specifically, and you know, Twitter is, is probably the best example of this, is, has changed the way that people relate to and interact with each other in a way that we've only just started to reckon with and are sort of trying to figure out how to make that work in a world where we do have to actually get along with each other. You know, I, what I think we're seeing right now is for a while there was this sort of sense what happened online wasn't real. But now it's all too likely that somebody will get fired from their job, will suffer real world lingering devastation as a result of like a mob coming after them online. So there's no sense of these things being too separate of what's happening online being somehow like just playing pretend. Right. And and uh, what you have as well is the ability to um, to exact punishment through doxing or contacting somebody's employer or other such examples without any repercussions. So, uh, you know, it's 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 the the equivalent of a sort of gaslighting people about a particular restaurant using Yelp. You can do that with human beings now and really not suffer any blowback, even if you've done it illegitimately. Right. And it's not just without repercussions, but without any sense of responsibility for the life that you're destroying, which I think is an interesting and unfortunate aspect of a lot of these shamings. Because of the way information travels online, you can log on and find something to be outraged about. You can make yourself very upset about somebody who was 
rude to a waiter 3,000 miles away in a city you've never been to. But you can, and people do, almost as a form of recreation. And I think this has only gotten worse in the past few months as people have been basically deprived of all other social outlets except for social media. You can recreationally take part in this shaming. You can do whatever it takes to destroy them, to hurt their reputation, to destroy their business. While happening at this remove, I think to the people who are perpetrating it, it doesn't feel real. And of course, to the person on the receiving end of this stuff, it's just complete destruction. And of course, um, you know, ironies abound here, but um, those same people who are advocating, even shrieking like uh, on the campus of Yale there, for safe spaces and protection from any offense are the ones engaged in the most reckless, offensive, often fact-free attacks on people with whom they disagree. And that sort of irony just goes by the boards. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of hypocrisy out there. And so thinking about this, I mean, this is uh, hotly debated right now, whether it's uh, talking about the liability immunity that uh, the social media platforms currently enjoy under Section 230 of the Telecom Act or something even more drastic than that, you know, regulation of these platforms. Do you see an obvious way out or, or a way to at least improve the quality and the tolerance for discourse? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm so far removed from the policy discussions surrounding Section 230 that I couldn't really speak to that at all. You know, when I write about this stuff and when I report on this stuff, what I really focus on is how people are behaving, the ease with which we sort of demonize and dehumanize each other online. I think that probably rather than asking the government to kind of save us from ourselves in this respect, it, it would be a lot better if people could kind of come together and agree to be decent to each other, to be charitable to each other, to to give each other a little grace, which is really lacking online right now. I don't know. Maybe uh, the platforms like Zoom where FaceTime, where you at least are having face to face conversations, but that's usually with friends and colleagues. It seems to me the anonymity of the uh, social media provides sort of the impetus for worst instincts. And so I don't know how you generate um, people considering <laughs> considering uh, to operate with a bit more grace when you have all of the incentives to suggest if there's somebody you don't like or something that was said that you don't like, you have uh, carte blanche to use uh, all the social media tools at your disposal to uh, inflict damage. Right. I mean, you have to find a way to convince people to resist the dopamine hit of getting angry and exacting revenge. Um, I have no idea. I have no idea how you do that. I mean, it's something that I think is incredibly important and something that I've applied in my own life, but I don't know, you know for people who spend their lives online this way, I, I don't know how you convince them to stop. Well, and one of the things, uh, we talked a little bit last hour uh, about this with uh, Theodore Dalrymple, retired uh, psychiatrist across the pond in the UK, and, and one of the things to, perhaps to remind people is, um, you know, it's it's the little guy that is the most vulnerable to destruction here. People that have power, have status, have profile. Yeah, you can you can shame them maybe into an apology or, or, you know, to bend the knee or some such thing if they said something you don't like. But you can't really get to them the way that you could destroy somebody who's just an average citizen. And maybe that's something to keep in mind before you go nuclear on on somebody you disagree with. 
it's a difficult thing because that's, I think, part of the appeal for the people who, who do engage in this stuff is, you know, like you said, the possibility of, you know, reaching this kind of havoc without consequences and often without anybody even noticing that it's happening. I was just thinking as you were talking about the sort of peak Me Too movement when you had, mm-hmm. for instance, Louis C.K. getting canceled. And as everyone has you know, pointed out, he's not really canceled. He can still come back and work. And there are still people who want to hear from him. You know, he he hasn't gone and crawled into a cave and died somewhere. At the same time, you had, for instance, this anonymous list, expletive media men list, that right, was, right, um, right. was being circulated, um, you know, created by this woman named Moira Donegan. And um, you know, anybody could contribute to it. It was an anonymous Google Doc. And a fair number of the men who were included on this document, um, who were who were nobodies, who were freelancers and didn't have any kind of institutional support, um, have had their lives completely destroyed and have just have just vanished into desperate obscurity as a result. Kat Rosenfield, she's a freelance pop culture and political writer, former reporter for MTV News and Edgar nominated author of Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone and Inland. Kat, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. 1100 Googlers Against Racism have uh, signed a document asking, well, demanding, of course, demanding, calling on uh, the company to stop selling technology to police departments. So says the Googlers petition. We as a society have moved past the point where saying Black Lives Matter is not enough. We need to show it in our thinking, in our words and in our actions that black lives do matter to us. The past weeks have seen a renewed energy and momentum fighting racism. They have also shown us that addressing racism is not merely an issue of words, but of actions and so on and so forth. Uh, difficult conversations, underrepresented people in leadership, so on and so forth. Stop doing business with police. That's the upshot of it. Don't stop flacking for the Chinese communists, but stop doing business with police departments uh, in America. Well, um, this sort of goes to uh, some comments that uh, Attorney General Barr made over the weekend in that interview with Maria Bartiroma. We played excerpts from yesterday, but we didn't get to this one. And this one is uh, Barr opining on the bait and switch that he argues social media platforms, the big tech companies that control the big social media platforms engaged in from their inception to present and why they should be subjected to a removal of their Section 230 immunity and perhaps antitrust prosecution, particularly in the case of Google. There's something, you know, uh, very disturbing about what's going on. To some extent, there was a bait and switch over the past couple of decades. These companies held themselves out as open to all comers. That's how they built up all their membership and their networks, saying, you know, we have a wide variety of views. People can come in and and post their views and and their positions and their statements. And that's what led to people to join it and then get the strong market position they have. Then they've switched. Now they're being more selective and they're starting to censor different viewpoints. But you have this concentration of these very large companies uh, that have that kind of influence on the sharing of information and, and viewpoints in our society. 
And that, that is a fundamental problem because, you know, our republic was founded on the idea and the whole rationale was that there'd be a lot of diversity of voices and it would be hard for someone to be able to galvanize, you know, a big faction in the United States that could dominate politically and oppress a minority. And yet now we have, with the Internet and with these big concentrations of power, the ability to do just that, to quickly galvanize people's views because they're only presenting one viewpoint and they can push the public in a particular direction very quickly. And our whole constitution and system was based on not having that and having a wide diversity of voices. So one way this can be addressed is through the antitrust laws and, and, and challenging companies that engage in monopolistic practices. Uh, I don't necessarily endorse the uh, uh, solution the, um, and, and, frankly, the belief that anything can be a monopoly short of government sanction. But I think Barr has the uh, diagnosis of the problem spot on, and it's a big one. This is Dan Proff. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Well, um, we've got confirmation that there will be three presidential debates come October This after the Biden campaign said in a letter to the Commission on Presidential Debates yesterday that they would accept the planned schedule and uh, would not accept more debates, which is what the Trump campaign wanted. Of course, they want as many debates as possible for all sorts of obvious reasons, although the um, second debate in order that was scheduled for the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan is backed out. So right now you've got uh, University of Utah and Salt Lake City on October 7th. Belmont University as the site of the last debate on October 22nd, Belmont University in Nashville, and to be determined, the October 15th debate. So the question is, how does President Trump frame this race against the backdrop of COVID-19, against the backdrop of the social upheaval ongoing, against the backdrop of an unemployment rate in double digits, Uh, even with the expectation that we'll see improvements in the third quarter going into the November 3rd election. For help answering that, we're pleased to be joined by Radical Son himself. He is David Horowitz, founder and president of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, editor of Front Page Magazine, and the author of the recently released Blitz, Trump Will Smash the Left and Win. That's got to be good news for Trump. I think it is because he retweeted it. David Horowitz, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So yeah, it's an easy, easy campaign for Trump. Okay. But I describe in my book Blitz how the Democrat Party is now a racist party that owns the inner cities of America, every inner city of any size, everyone that's erupted where these leftist bears have allowed, have held back the police and allowed these vandals and criminals to run riot in the streets, burn people's stores, burn their homes, kill people. Every one of them is 100% controlled by the Democrat Party and has been for 50 to 100 years. Every killing field of Chicago, to begin with, Detroit, 
Baltimore, St. Louis, 100% controlled by the Democratic Party. As I say, 50 to 100 years, every injustice in the inner city, every alleged police infraction, what Democrats are 100% responsible for, aren't they? In Minneapolis, there isn't a Republican in several well, Chicago is practically the same as well. With the Democrats, my book, Blitz, shows how the Democrats use race as a weapon. I'll, I'll pick a recent event, the killing of uh, George Floyd. Why is that racial? The four, four cops have been indicted, charged with murder, without an investigation. How an American is that? One of them is African-American. Another is an Asian-American. Where's the evidence that there was anything racial about this? That, that, may be, that, that, that may be right on the merits, but it doesn't seem to be necessarily translated that way in terms of public opinion. I mean, it doesn't seem that Joe Biden... Yeah, because a country, we are in the midst of a hysteria with a left, which runs the media, thanks to the one-party universities, which uh, indoctrinate people in leftist ideology, yeah. you know, has stoked this illusion that there's somehow rampant racism and police brutality. All the statistics show the opposite. I understand. So I, I, I understand. But, 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 but Trump is running into this headwind of suburban suburbanites with hate has no home here signs in their yards, Black Lives Matter signs yeah. in their yards. And and so what, what the perception becomes the political reality, as you well understand. And so well, do, and so he has a bit of a headwind, doesn't he? To a point, it does. If it was another Republican who wasn't willing to point this out, I'd say yes. But people aren't stupid. They may put Black Lives Matter signs in their lawn, but they want police and they want they want. You know, I've done gang stories in South Central Los Angeles, and every black mother that I interviewed who lost a child, I asked, you know, what's your complaint about police? There aren't enough of them, right. and they're not here when you need them. That, that's the complaint. So, you know, we have the statistics. Seventy-three percent of Americans support the police. That's plenty to win an election, no matter what people. People are saying things that they, they don't obviously believe. Why? Because they're scared. Right, I understand you know, that. Lynch mob out there. You know, Jimmy Kimmel about to lose his career over jokes. So I think he deserves it, you know, because he's a reprehensible human being who slandered the president over and over again. But the reality is, we don't hang people in the, in the normal times in America for jokes. Well, well, right. And so but so so it's incumbent upon Trump then to make sure that he's framing the choice for the American people. Or do you think that uh, he can uh, just sort of do his uh, vaudeville routine at rallies and that's going to be enough? Well, I thought that the Tulsa rally was great. I thought his speech was wonderful and full of energy. And he said the right things. Joe Biden is a puppet. He doesn't even know where he is. Imagine the Democrat Party is running a senile guy with dementia for president. Well, then, what, but, but, but what's, your, what's your assessment of what they clearly believe, that all they have to do is make this a referendum on Trump and Joe Biden can win from his basement? That seems to be their approach. Oh, no, you know, they made that mistake the last time, didn't they? Look, people have eyes. They understand. They didn't see every one of these mayors that didn't call in the police that's encouraged the violence is a Democrat. They're a racist, for that matter. I think Trump is very smart to let Seattle explode and uh, of course, they've taken over Portland, and they want to do it in Minneapolis. Fine. The unintended consequence of all this, and let's remember, 
the election is still months away, right. is to expose the Democrats for the disaster that they are, to expose the left for its malevolent, malignant agendas. It's not about black lives. They don't care about black lives. 104 people, blacks, were shot in Chicago over the Father's Day weekend. Where were there? 12 deaths. Where were the protests of that? They're not out there. People understand that they've been shined on by the Black Lives Matter racists. They uh, just hate white people. Uh, yeah, you you know, know, they're after Jesus now. And only the Jesus statues and portraits that are white. How transparent is their hatred? I want to get I want to get your your view on what you're seeing on the streets today. I mean, just given your history, starting out as a, a 60s era right. radical leftist and what you see, uh, you know, 50 years later on the streets of America, compare and contrast. First of all, there was a civil rights movement in the 60s. Right. If you look at the you just go up on YouTube and look at the marchers, they're all in suits. They're all them are uh, you know, they're very peaceful. that's what a peaceful protest looks like. The 60s had these elements. As you know, I, I was involved with the Black Panther Party, which is a forerunner of Black right. Lives Matter. Right. And I, I left because they murdered a mother of three who I had recruited to do bookkeeping for the, a school that I had bought for them. That was my wake-up call. I, I think people can see it. All you have to do is know that Rayshard Brooks, the black who was killed in uh, in Atlanta was serving a seven-year sentence for cruelty to his own children. What a monster is that? Uh, they let him out because Democrats like to let criminals out because of the COVID virus. He resisted arrest because he didn't, didn't want to go back to jail. Uh, and he was shot but, while shooting at a cop with his own weapon for crying out tears. So and they charged the cop with murder. How racist. What is wrong with the Atlanta City Council and prosecutors? So, so for Trump's reelection bid in November, I mean, is it do you think that this is all going to be pushed through the lens of law and order? I mean, uh, probably relitigating individual cases is not the way to go. But, but well, law, that, law and order versus uh, the vandals and the clockwork orange mobs yeah, that you people, see on the streets. What people want, first of all, from the government is safety, security. Seventy three percent of people including a vast majority of blacks, want police. They want more police. And my book, and I Trump would be fearless. That's, that's one of the lessons from my book, Let Trump will smash the left and win, is that he, he's, he's been able to prevail over all this libelous name-calling because he's got guts and he fights back. He called out Elijah Cummings, a black Democrat who represents Baltimore, uh, as a racist for letting his people suffer in, in the, you know, they got $15 billion a year in federal funds. Whose pockets did that go into? It's one of the poorest uh, constituencies. Elijah Cummings made a million, you know, he died with a net worth of over a million dollars, even though he was just a politician. Uh, well, he kept his people down. And Trump said that's racism. These are conditions unfit for human beings, and you defended it. Now, I wish there were 100 Republicans like that, but uh, at the present, there's one or two. I, I think Rick Grinnell is another one. He is uh, David Horowitz, founder and president of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, editor of Front Page Magazine, and the author of the recently released book, Blitz, Trump Will Smash the Left and Win. David Horowitz, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Take care. Down on the corner, out in the street, really in the boat for the plane. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. By now, you've heard uh, some or all of the clips from former National Security Advisor John Bolton in advance of uh, his book in the room and. It happened in the room or in the room that it happened or whatever it's called. Um, you get the gist of it. And, you know, again, um, well, had John Bolton. I've talked to John Bolton myriad times over the years. Always enjoyed our conversations, even when we disagreed. And uh, we disagree here just on the approach that he's taken. Um, I'm, I'm, so I'm not piling on. It's just on the merits of the case that he's making. So to refresh everybody's recollection, uh, John Bolton explaining why he didn't testify at impeachment when he could, the impeachment trial. But also um, note that uh, despite all of his assertions about how incompetent and effectively corrupt the president is, he stopped short of suggesting that he should have been impeached. He stopped short of saying high crimes and misdemeanors were committed by this president. Then there might have been a greater chance to persuade others that high crimes and misdemeanors had been perpetrated. You say that in the book. Do you believe, as you look at what you call this broader pattern, that high crimes and misdemeanors were perpetrated by President Trump? I think the example of Ukraine uh, could well amount to it. As for the others, they require more investigation. I saw pieces of it that troubled me greatly. Uh, But Ukraine, for example, where he is urging a foreign government to help him for his own domestic political purposes, you know, George H.W. Bush was confronted with the same opportunity in the 1992 election to look into Bill Clinton's activities, I'll just call them that, during his college and uh, college days and his days at Oxford in Europe. And uh, President Bush and Jim Baker at the time said, we are absolutely not going to do it. Donald Trump went right for it. I mean, I don't even understand the comparison, actually. I I don't know that that's particularly compelling. And uh, it is, again, noteworthy that Bolton won't make a commitment on the topic, even on the instance that he knows uh, uh, better than the others, he suggests, uh, Ukraine. That is noteworthy. And by the way, the Ukraine matter, of course, the one litigated. Huh. Uh, Holman Jenkins, writing in The Wall Street Journal, makes another point uh, about uh, Bolton's suggestion that Trump is just naked in his interest in reelection as opposed to other presidents who are just more couched about it, but have the same attitude. Uh, Mr. Trump's defining quality has been his gargantuan cynicism about the game of politics and the politicians who play it, a cynicism shared by millions of voters. But this leaves out something Bolton does, writes Jenkins. He seeks personal victories, all right, but one's constantly aimed at fulfilling the vision he sold to voters and apparently truly believes in. Our elites are hypocritical and corrupt. We've been suckers in trade deals. Our allies take advantage of us. Our rivals don't respect us because we appear weak. Ukraine, China, Angela Merkel and Putin, all covered by those four descriptors, descriptive phrases. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Jed Babin, former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense and contributor to The Washington Times and The American Spectator. Jed, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. 
Hey, good to be with you, Dan. So what about uh, uh, John Bolton's uh, sort of, you know, bombshell, quote-unquote, you know, D.C. press corps style, assertions about what Trump knows and doesn't know and how he conducted himself and some of the things he's alleged to have said. But at the end of the day, he stopped short of saying he should be, be removed from office. He just thinks he should be a one-term president. Well, that's really the whole problem with Bolton and the book. You look through it, and I've read the doggone thing. I don't think anybody who has really been commenting on it so far has read it. I've read it. The basic point is there's an awful lot in there. There are a lot of things that Trump should can and should be criticized for, but there is nothing there that indicates Trump is incompetent or incapable of leaving the government or should be impeached. You know, I'm sitting there reading it and I'm thinking, where's the beef? And there really isn't much in there at all. That's the problem with the book. That's the problem with the book tour. And, you know, I, I knew John 10 years ago when I was editor of Human Events. He's a brilliant man, but he likes things done in a particular way. And what this book is all about is that Trump doesn't do things the way Mr. Bolton wanted them done. And you know what? That's not <laughs> that's not a valid criticism. Well, and, it, and Trump it, was elected to do what he is doing. And it should hardly have been a surprise to Bolton <laughs> that that would be the case. Right. Sure. I mean, look, anybody who has ever met the president, I've never met him, but anybody who even reads about him can tell he can be inconsistent. Sometimes he's going to be erratic. He does ranting things on Twitter that can't be taken very seriously. But and that's one of the problems that people have. People like Bolton, they want to take Trump literally and not seriously instead of taking him seriously and not literally. And uh, something else that, that Jenkins pointed out, as I was mentioning in the journal, about uh, you know this whole idea he's you know focused on his reelection and that's informing his decisions. Boy, that's really uh, unusual for a politician. And but but Jenkins pointing out that yet yeah, he may be interested in personal victories for reelection, but that's aligned with exactly what he said he would do when he ran for president. So it's it, it's aligning his interests with the interests of his constituents, the American people. Well, and you know I could go farther than that. It's not just that. You know, the, fa- the fact is every president looks at most decisions in terms of being reelected and his legacy in his second term. You're looking at something like, well, Barack Obama's presidency was never anything but considering what was coming in the next election and to help the Democrats or to help himself personally. He made no decision that was not calculated in that way. So for people to be criticizing Trump about that, OK, it can be a valid criticism in some ways, but in some ways it's just totally ridiculous. Well, also his assessment on sort of the macro question, is America better positioned in the world? Is is America more secure? Is America stronger uh, after three years of President Trump? He says no, that we're considerably weaker, but you start to run through our posture vis-a-vis our enemies, in particular the, the Russias and the Irans of the world, and it's isn't it difficult to make out the case that we're we're in a weaker position than we were prior to Trump with respect to those uh, adversaries, North Korea, too? Well, there I have to pretty much agree with what Bolton said. OK, if you look at what Mr. Trump has done, for example, you raised the question, North Korea. I mean, we have had, what, two meetings between Trump and Kim Jong Un, none of which were conducted after preconditions were met. The president of the United States cannot meet with, meet with people like this without imposing preconditions to the meeting, which give the meeting a benefit and pave the way for a further compromise. So that's really, it's a pretty fair criticism. Mr. Trump has been playing pals with uh, Putin for way too long. So there are a lot of things that uh, 
that Bolton says that are quite frankly absolutely correct. But but there's a difference between uh, you know being rhetorically chummy, um, and and I it makes me uncomfortable too. And then the actual policy choices that have been made have have has he weakened uh, sanctions against Russia? Has he weakened our position? against uh, Russia or China or Iran or North Korea? Well, yes, in some terms. You know, we have, he has not weakened sanctions. He's played games with some of the sanctions, which is fine. That's the president's prerogative. But in terms of our weakness against them, when he said to Putin, I think this was in 2018, and don't hold me to the date, but he was at a summit with Putin, and he was asked, well, who do you believe, Putin or the intelligence community? Yeah, in Helsinki, and he said, yeah. Well, and he and he said, "Well, I believe either or both equally." That is just incredibly dumb for an American president to say. It weakens our intelligence posture, and it certainly weakens our posture against Russia. He is Jed Babin, former U.S. Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, contributor to the Washington Times and the American Spectator. Jed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Very interesting interview that uh, Muhammad Ali Jr., Cassius Clay's only biological son, gave to the New York Post over the weekend, calling the Black Lives Matter movement racist. And uh, saying, don't bust up blank. Don't trash the place. You can peacefully protest. My father would have said, they ain't nothing but devils. My father said, all lives matter. I don't think he'd agree with, you know, what they're doing. He thinks the Black Lives Matter movement is racist. It's a racial statement. It's pitting black people against everyone else. It starts racial things to happen. I hate that. Uh, Ali Jr., not all police are bad. There's just a few. There's a handful of police that are crooked. They should be locked up. I never had a bad scene with a cop. They've always been nice and protect me. I don't have a problem with them. I think Trump's a good president, Ali Jr. said. My father would have supported him. Trump's not racist. He's for all the people. Democrats are the ones who are racist and not for everybody. These Democrat politicians saying Black Lives Matter. Who the hell are you to say that? You're not even black. A message across the bow of the uh, ghoulish white uh, champagne socialists. And um, that's a knockout punch from Muhammad Ali Jr. I love it. For more on uh, Black Lives Matter... And uh, some of those ghastly white champagne socialists in charge of uh, uh, influential cultural civic organizations. We're pleased to be joined again by Paul Kanger. He is a professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, PA, senior academic fellow at the Center for Visions and Values and author of the forthcoming The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception and Infiltration. Boy, that can't come soon enough. I mean, the book, not uh, the long march of death. Paul Kanger, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're so right about that, Dan. <laughs> uh, so you uh, wrote a piece for The Spectator, um, speaking of uh, some of, I think, the people that Muhammad Ali Jr. was speaking of, Planned Parenthood and Planned Parenthood's statement of uh, earnest support for black lives mattering. Oh, as you write, the sick irony. Yeah, I mean, they talk here about their black patients, as they put it, and about uh, as the nation confronts COVID-19, which disproportionately ravages black communities. That's from their tweets. They put out a series of tweets, Planned Parenthood Federation of America. 
I say in this piece that you want to talk about something disproportionately ravaging black communities. What about abortion? I mean, since Roe v. Wade in 1973, about 40 percent of abortions are among black women. I mean, this is absolutely stunning. COVID-19 has killed probably about 120,000 Americans, but the total number of unborn African-American babies killed by abortion is at least 20 million. And if you want a sense of proportion, World Wars One and Two combined, we lost about 500,000 Americans. If you take all wars combined in the history of America, that's about 1.3 million deaths. So to lose 20 million unborn African-American babies since 1973 by abortion, and with Planned Parenthood doing more of those abortions than any other organization, you know, for them to run around saying that black lives matter. And by the way, to make this even worse, I found out after I wrote this article, here's how naive I was about Black Lives Matter. I extend an olive branch here and I said, hey, Black Lives Matter, you want to protest Planned Parenthood? All right. How about that? I'll be the first one at the head of the march. Well, a number of people emailed me and said, hey, dude, wake up. Go to their website. They're totally pro-choice. Yes, right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) They oppose the nuclear family. That's right. Right. No, that, that, to your to your forthcoming book, they're Marxists. They're not uh, just racialists. Yeah, they are Marxists. And in fact, it's Patrice Cullors. Her last name is spelled, I think, C-U-L-L-O-R-S. And the video just emerged from her. I'm not surprised by this. I mean, this is something that we knew all along. And, and she actually says, you can see this on YouTube, quote, we actually do have an ideological frame. She says, Militia and I are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. So they're trained Marxists. And that's no surprise. You know, I teach Marxism. I teach it at Grove City College. I don't advocate for it. (laughs) I guess you could say I teach anti-Marxism. But there's this really kind of chilling line at the end of the Communist Manifesto from Marx and Engels. And listen to this, guys. They wrote... Communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. They're supporting any revolutionary movement that can help take down the existing social and political order of things. So when people on our side say, defunding the police, why would they favor defunding the police? I mean, that's going to give you chaos and disorder. Well, yeah, exactly. They know what they're doing. (laughs) That's the point. Well, let's hold it there, and when we come back, I want to uh, talk about uh, the real history of Planned Parenthood versus the stylized version of Planned Parenthood's history written by cultural Marxists and schools and public offices. More with uh, Grove City College's Paul Kanger next. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Grove City College poli sci professor Paul Kanger, and Paul, let's uh, get to the history of Planned Parenthood and you know what the real support infrastructure of Planned Parenthood is and who it is. The history of Planned Parenthood that persists to the present, the history informs the present. It's funny. They think that with respect to slavery, 
and with respect to Jim Crow, but they don't think that with respect to the founding of Planned Parenthood. And, the, you know, the, my Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. And Planned Parenthood is driven by white suburban socialist women who are racists. They don't want more poor black children. They don't want more poor Latino children. All you have to do is uh, put your ear to the ground at a cocktail party in the North Shore in Chicago or any other Tony rich leftist enclave and you'll hear it. Well, yeah, I remember, Dan, the quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? She said, when we did Roe v. Wade, we thought this was about um, eliminating uh, populations that we don't want too many of. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mentioned in here Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. She had a Negro project. She talked about race improvement. And in May 1926, she spoke to the women's chapter of the KKK in Silver Lake, New Jersey. How do we know that? She writes about it in her memoirs. Her 1938 memoirs, pages 366 to 367, I know the exact page numbers because we, I put it in a photocopy and my, I have my students read it once a year in one of the history classes I teach. And she talks in there about how, this is the exact quote, I saw through the door dim figures parading with banners and illuminated crosses. I waited another 20 minutes to speech. It was warmer and I did not mind so much. Then she gets out there, she speaks, and she was such a hit. She says this in her memoirs. I believe I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. The conversation went on and on. And when we were finally through, it was too late to return to New York. She didn't get back to her hotel in Trenton until about 1 o'clock in the morning. That's her speaking to the KKK. And, 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 when and the... Yet, uh... When the statues of Margaret Sanger go up around the country, then I'll lead the group to tear those statues down right. since we have mob rule now. Right. There's a bust to Margaret Sanger in the Smithsonian. Yeah. In, in this article of the American Spectator, if you look at the picture at the top, that's Margaret Sanger Square in New York. That's the original Planned Parenthood clinic. And look, and look at that picture I got in front of me. There are one, two, three, four, five, six white women outside of that clinic. It's on Bleecker Street. I walked past it last fall. I saw black women walking inside there to get abortions. There's no call to rename that square something other than Margaret Sanger Square. So they're running around not only staring down, uh, taking down statues of Stonewall Jackson, but for some reason Ulysses S. Grant, the Union soldier who defeated right. Yeah, but Margaret Sanger's peachy with these people. It's insane. Well, it, it speaks to something, too, and you, should, you, of course, understand this as an academic, but um, the left has won— the writing of history and uh, and now they're stepping uh, on the gas with respect to rewriting history. Now we're starting, you know, in large measure, the idea is for 2020 America to be year zero America. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I, I guess we should. Is that right? I hadn't heard that. One. Well, I mean, I, I think I think that's where they're going with uh, the indiscriminate ripping down of monuments, the 1619 yeah, project. Right. Uh, that's a Pulitzer credential now. I mean, where where else could they be going? Uh, they they the slavery is wired into our DNA. America's a racist country. They figured out starting in the 60s, and now it's amplified and it's rampant that the way to power is to make a claim based on identity and cower. Uh, those who would stand in your way. And that's exactly what they've done as they have allied all of the power structures that govern the important cultural and civic and corporate 
institutions in society. So you have all the ingredients for starting America anew in 2020. I mean, I don't want to be dramatic, but don't you? Yeah, well, how Jacobin-like that would be, wouldn't it? In fact, the Jacobins in revolutionary France... They renamed the year 1794 the year zero. Yes. And uh, yeah, and Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, which uh, murdered two million people out of a population of five to seven million in Cambodia in the late 70s, they remade. I think it was the year 1978 was renamed the year zero. Um, Mussolini, who you know people know was a fascist, he was also a Marxist. He tried to do this in 1922 in in, in uh, Italy. And by the way, a key part of that is changing the Anno Domini calendar, right, to literally take Jesus out of the calendar. And, in fact, the left has already been doing this. A lot of style guides, what are they using now, guys? They think BCE, right, Right. instead of BC. So instead of before Christ, before current era. Yes. And AD, they've already changed that. So you have to remove Christ from the calendar. Yeah, this is very much a a totalitarian, you know, human nature redefining project. And crosses of Jesus, yeah, that'll come down next. In fact, I have have a piece at National Catholic Register. They're taking down uh, St. Hinipero Serra throughout California, who was, um, he was the founding Christian missionary on the West Coast. You guys are in Chicago. I'm an East Coast guy. We don't really know about Junipero Serra. He was basically uh, like the Mayflower to what the Mayflower and Pilgrims were to the East Coast. Um, San Francisco is named for St. Francis. Uh, Santa Barbara is named for St. Barbara. Um, Santa Clara is named for St. Clara. I bet most people in California don't even know those are all those are saint names. So, but and his great just wait crime, till they, just wait till they find out those are, those will be right on the list <laughs> right behind St. Louis in the list of cities to be renamed. Yeah, yeah, and they they did that in revolutionary France as well, or they tried to. And so they are. Um, yeah, this this is really an unholy project, and I we warned people about this. Even Donald Trump said, I think it was after Charlottesville, he said, well, look, you start tearing down Confederate soldiers, how long before they come for George Washington? He here in slaves, and everybody said, oh, white supremacist dog whistle, Trump, right? <laughs> well, they just tore down a statue of George Washington. That's a great impersonation you do of one of those vandals, uh, Paul. Uh, <laughs> Paul Kanger, he's a professor of poli-sci at Grove City College and Grove City, PA, senior academic fellow at the Center for Vision and Values and author of the forthcoming book, The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Paul, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Dan Prof show and hey uh, the mayor of Seattle Jenny Durkin again still baffles me that she was a former U.S. attorney as she seeds a police precinct in six blocks of her downtown to the mob but that's the case 
she and her police chief, Carmen Vest, said uh, they're going to have to uh, regain control of the East Precinct building. They turned over to uh, the mob, providing uh, a nice monument in the independent nation of Chaz slash Chop. They're going to do it at some point, peacefully, in the near future, but it will be in phases. <laughs> What's that mean? I'm sure they don't know. But maybe uh, Chaz is actually more free than um, Seattle. Seattle City Council last week achieved another first. A city council known for achieving firsts. Wait till you hear this. It unanimously, of course it did, enacted an ordinance requiring food delivery app companies to provide gig workers premium pay for deliveries in the city on top of their usual compensation and prohibiting the companies from raising fees so they can't pass it on to the customer or leaving the city in response, even if the new rule causes them to lose money. You have to open. This is what you're going to pay your employees. If you lose money, you have to stay open. The Seattle City Council is not particularly familiar with or concerned about the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. That's clear. But maybe uh, this could be a boon to Chaz slash Chop. Maybe Chaz slash Chop uh, could um, enjoy some residents fling Seattle for a freer, more sensible public policy regime. Uh, To understand how unprecedented this is, uh, write uh, two uh, wonks, one from the Mackinac Center, the other from the Employment Policy Institute. Imagine if Seattle's $15 minimum wage law restricted restaurants from closing their doors or adjusting their prices in response, effectively forcing them to continue operating at a loss. You just raise my cost of labor. I can't pass it on to the customer. I just have to eat it. That eats up all my margins. So now every transaction, I'm losing money. This sounds very much like the reopen policies in lockdown cities like Chicago. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to allow you to have uh, 25% of your indoor space able for customer uh, available for customers, uh, no more than 50 individuals. So 25% or 50 people, whichever is less so that you can lose money more slowly. Isn't that wonderful? This is a city council, by the way, in Seattle that uh, previously passed a wealth tax on the income of wealthy households, even though the city advised it would be illegal under state law, which of course the state Supreme court held that it was, (laughs) this is the next step. We're not only uh, uh, setting your wages by executive fiat. Now we're setting your prices as well and thus your profit or lack thereof and whether or not you're allowed to stop operating. Uh, Again, I I just think perhaps Chaz slash chop would be a welcome relief from the onerous regulatory burdens of Seattle proper. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. We appreciate it, and uh, please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.